This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, November 30th. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. We hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's great to be back with you. On today's show, we talk with Reverend Johnny Moore and Rabbi Abraham Cooper, two globally recognized human rights advocates about their new book, The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. We also read your letters to the editor and share a good news story about how a family who was once homeless themselves is now giving back to those in need. Before we get to today's show, Rob and I want to thank you for your support of The Daily Signal. Each day, The Daily Signal brings you news you can trust on the most important policy debates facing our country. We cut through the liberal media spin and provide honest, thorough, and responsible reporting to today's critical issues. But we can't do it without the help of patriots like you. Consider giving a tax-deductible contribution to The Daily Signal and help us build the conservative movement this year and beyond. Just visit dailysignal.com donate. With your help, we can build an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. I am so pleased to be joined by Reverend Johnny Moore and Rabbi Abraham Cooper, two globally recognized human rights advocates and authors of the new book, The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. Reverend Moore and Rabbi Cooper, thank you both so much for being here today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the book, uh, The Next Jihad, it dives deep into what is going on in Africa as it relates to the persecution of Christians. And, you know, we hear a lot in the news about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and parts of Asia, but we really don't hear much about Africa. So Reverend Moore, can, can you just first explain what exactly is happening in Africa? What is the situation here? Well, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to, to learn that uh, in 2015, uh, when ISIS was at its very height in Iraq and Syria, and uh, the, the destruction was on the news every single day, uh, that simultaneously in Africa's largest country, Nigeria, uh, there were ISIS-like terrorists that had already uh, that year killed more Christians uh, and, and basically anyone that stood in their way, including plenty of Muslims, uh, than ISIS uh, killed in Iraq and Syria. In fact, uh, they, they have uh, they have probably killed as many as a hundred thousand people uh, over over the last last couple of, of of decades. And all of this has been escalating very very quickly. Uh, and, and again, it's uh, Nigeria that we're talking about. It's the uh, the largest country on the continent. It has. Uh, the largest economy on the continent, the 10th largest oil reserves in the world. Uh, it, it is a, a, a type of suffering that has been happening in the shadows and the world needs to awaken to it. Well, and why, why do you think we haven't been hearing about it? I mean, those numbers are staggering. You know, I, I think this is one of the, one of the great mysteries and uh, one, one of the reasons why uh, Rabbi Cooper and I traveled there. Uh, and, and, I, and I should say it was Rabbi Cooper that encouraged me to go. Uh, you, know, and, and, you know, Rabbi Cooper's Jewish. I'm Christian. Uh, and he said, Johnny, we have, to go, we have to go meet with the Christians that are suffering, suffering in Nigeria. And, we, and that's what we did. I mean, we traveled over before COVID-19 shut down the world and, and it was February. And we spent days meeting with victims and hearing their stories. And the most important thing that could happen from, from uh, this, this book, The Next uh, Jihad, 
is that people can hear the stories of these of these people who have suffered incomprehensible harm, uh, the villages that have been raised, the the women that have been uh, t- taken as slaves, uh, the children that have been killed in uh, grotesque ways in cold blood for their faith alone, the pastors who've been beheaded, the people who've been forcibly converted. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And when the media reports it, they they've generally, which is rare, they report it as tribal warfare or a dispute over resources. And and one of the things that we sort of came away settled with is is while all those things might also be true, you know, at its very heart, uh, there there is a religious component to this conflict. I mean, when you have terrorists running into villages saying Allahu Akbar as they as they burn down. Uh, the, the homes and churches of people whose property they feel religiously entitled to. I mean, that, that is, that is religious, but whatever your opinion is, you know, if it's religious terrorism or resources or, or tribal conflict, it doesn't change the fundamental facts on the ground, which is that there's a very, very bad situation. The Nigerian government, a democracy, an ally of the United States is not taking care of their people. And we're saying enough is enough. Nigeria needs to act now. Yeah. Rabbi Cooper, you have been uh, advocating for human human rights and really standing up on behalf of those that don't have a voice for about 50 years. Um, tell me a little bit about that trip to Nigeria that you all took earlier this year, what you saw, what you experienced, and why this issue is so critically important to you. Right. Well, uh, the goal here was really to put a human face on what had been in, until now a uh, drip, drip, drip of horrific headlines. Uh, you know, CNN International, BBC, 17 murdered. Uh, the one that especially got my uh, attention at the Simon Wiesenthal Center was the takeover of uh, a college dorm in the middle of the night. Uh, students were woken up and they were, you know, told at knife point. Uh, if you know, if you're Muslim or Christian, can you recite the Quran? And uh, the young people who were Christian had their uh, throats slit. And to us at the Wiesenthal Center, that sounded uh, at horrible echoes of earlier eras, including uh, during the Nazi period when Jews were selected and taken out. Secondly, you know, institutionally, we we've met with Pope Francis twice, and we've emphasized as a Jewish human rights organization that, of course, is concerned about anti-Semitism and, and the defense of our people, how Christian minorities are targeted all over the world. So I kept telling uh, Reverend Moore, or as I called him, Johnny, Johnny, we have to go to Nigeria, um, and not the easiest place to get to or, or to go. But we felt instinctively that what needed to happen was a transformation from occasional headlines to putting a human face on suffering. And then from a practical point of view, as you've heard the geopolitical importance of Nigeria, the fact that ISIS is now relocated and is putting down roots right next door uh, to Nigeria and you have Islamist terrorists operating and a million kids on the streets of that country that should be in school, you don't have to uh, be an expert to know that we've got a human rights disaster, we have humanitarian disaster in the making, and potentially cannon fodder for, God forbid, a resurgent ISIS that could strike at the heart of Africa and obviously try to come back and hit us again. So on every level, this crisis is important. And when you asked before why, you know, why doesn't anybody do it, why we don't hear about it, out of sight, out of mind. And as we learned from the 
Soviet Jewry movement in, during the Cold War. What we learn even today, we teach about the Holocaust each day. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. So putting a human face to an issue is the core reason we went. And writing the book was just fulfilling a, a commitment we made to the victims, uh, who some of whom had only just within a week or two had just escaped with their lives, barely, uh, make a commitment to them that, that they'd be heard and they'd be seen. What are some of those stories that have really stayed with you all that, you know, maybe you think about certain individuals on a regular basis and, and what they've, they've lived through and what they've experienced? I think of an 18-year-old uh, seminarian, um, Michael uh, Nadi, uh, whom, whom we write about, who uh, decided to, to, you know, give his entire life to serving, serving his faith. And in the middle of the night, uh, his, his seminary was awakened by the attack of these, of these terrorists. They kidnapped four uh, of, of the seminarians, a seminary of almost 300 people. Uh, the, the, the headmaster of, of, of the seminary, you know, he, he gives this quote to the media that is almost like nonchalant and not nonchalant in that he, he, he didn't care. It was nonchalant in the sense that, well, here we go again. You know, this is like this happens, you know, every three Fridays. And again, where, like, where's the government? Among the four seminarians, three of them uh, were able to be uh, ransomed out uh, through through a series of events. But Michael was found dead on the side of the road, and no one knew why he had died. And and, and there was a lot of speculation in, in the press that well, you know, they killed him in order to increase the ransom of 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 the other three. But we've since found out that this situation, which only took place earlier this year, uh, they 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 found the perpetrator, and the perpetrator told the press that the reason why he killed Michael was because Michael wouldn't stop talking about his faith. And the perpetrator was, uh, was a, 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 a radicalized Muslim. Uh, and, and Michael obviously was a seminarian. And he said, he just kept preaching to me and preaching to me and preaching to me. And it just annoyed me. And so I, I, I eventually killed him to shut him up. Uh, and, and it just shows like somehow in this country with the largest Christian population on the continent, it's split in half, sort of half Christian, half Muslim, 200 million people. You know, the government's inaction on the terrorism in the northeast of the country has has made lots of other people feel like that this is acceptable, acceptable behavior. You know, I, I think I think Michael is the one one that occurs to me. I, I'm sure, Rabbi Cooper, you have your own stories. Well, uh, you know, two two people come to mind. Number one is a nine year old girl who was brought by her uncle. Big eyes, beautiful little kid. And her uncle described the situation that uh, she saw her entire family, her parents, siblings, murdered before her eyes just a few weeks before. You know, uh, the, the profound sadness. Uh, many of the people are still basically in shock. I think, God forbid, we all would be in those kinds of situations. Um, and, you know, I remember a lot of us trying to work hard to get a smile on her face. Um, my main job in the synagogue I attend on our Sabbath is I give out Laffy Taffies. So I went back to my room where I have an emergency stash and, you know, I remember that little smile coming up. The other was also um, a kind of stunning moment for me. I'm an Orthodox rabbi. We're dealing here with a Christian problem. We were at a lunch where I think there were about 25 people witnessing their uh, personal experiences. And, and they came in from all over the country. And there was this one woman who spoke for four or five minutes. 
um, essentially explaining how her entire life had been destroyed. Her community had been destroyed. Her family, with the exception of one son who was in and out of hospitals, and your heart was breaking. And honestly, you sort of said to yourself, how could this woman go on? And then at the end, she just, as Johnny said, used the term nonchalantly, or it just seemed so natural to her. Well, she quoted King David Psalms, which was so central to our prayers. And uh, she, she quoted a, a line, you know, I, I will, um, I, I won't die. I will stay alive in order to uh, witness uh, the good that God has brought uh, to this world. And I was so moved by it that I, I stood up and I finished the rest of that uh, quote from King David in, in Hebrew. So as, as I found, and I think Reverend Moore has done also a tremendous amount of travel for different generations, um, you go to try to help people, and you find out from those experiences that you're the one who primarily is the one who's been uplifted, whose life has been uh, transformed by, uh, you know, people whose names we'll never know, but those experiences stay with you forever. Yeah, no, that's incredibly powerful and uh, hard not to walk away, uh, just completely changed. How how could you be the same? That's that's really really incredible. Um, you know, if I can, I yeah. just, let's wax a little biblically here, and to be uh, very much rooted in reality. We're now reading the Jewish world on the Sabbath. We're we're started reading the five books of Moses again in Genesis, and right from the get go, um, you know, there are situations even within families where uh, brothers uh, uh, do harm to each other, when, when people you would think would intervene and help stand by uh, and don't do anything. And that's an indictment according uh, to Genesis, and clearly God wants us to be involved when we see that kind of suffering. It's not just a test for the people who unfortunately have suffered, but it's a test to the bystanders. And mm -hmm. we're individually and collectively in that uh, position and um, obviously, people of faith, we feel, we hope, a deeper moral obligation to act and not just to consider this only in geopolitical terms. I've heard a great quote of people saying that we're, we're held accountable for what we know. Um, and I, I think that's very true, that when, when we hear these things going on in the world, there's a responsibility to act. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think for for individuals like me, you know, who you know, live in the Western world, and uh, you know, you hear stories like this, and it's like, oh gosh, I want to do something, but I don't know what my role is here. So, you know, how would you all encourage people to to be involved and and be fighting for those that that can't defend themselves? Well, you know, in in the book, we have a, a entire chapter. Uh, called the moral imperative uh, to act, uh, which, which basically says what you said a moment ago, which is, you know, we, we have now uh, imparted upon our readers and those listening to us now uh, knowledge, and they have to do something with this knowledge. And, and one of the promises we made when we met with uh, these, these victims uh, is that we would, uh, we, we would do what we could, but the first thing we could do was to tell their stories. Uh, and so I, 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 I always tell people that, it's not just enough to know what's happening in these circumstances around the world. You have to really internalize it. You, you have to, you have to put yourselves in the shoes of people who 
traveling to their family members uh, over the religious holidays, and they're they're scared to death. They don't even carry their IDs, uh, so so if they get pulled over, maybe they could pass as a as as not being a Christian. Uh, I, I mean, the, you have to put yourself in the shoes of these people, and yeah, there's a big long list of all the things that you can do, and the Nigerian government can do, and the U.S. government can do. There's a whole chapter dedicated to that. Uh, but but practically speaking, you know, I I, ju- I just think now as we're talking that everyone listening to us, uh, they need to to know the stories of these victims. They need to pray for these people the way they hope someone would pray for them if they were in their shoes. Uh, we when we give to support these people, we all have our our favorite organizations. We need to give like we we hope someone would give to us. If you pick up and you call your member of Congress, whatever political party they they are, because of whatever district that you live in, like you know, advocate for these people the way you hope someone you, someone would be would be fighting for you. You know, and the fact is on on, on that front. Uh, Nigeria is a, an ally of the of the the United States of America. It's a very very important country, and we're we're not we're not meaning to disparage Nigeria, uh, but we are encouraging you know the the leaders of of the United States you know to as just happened actually uh, uh, you know a, a few days ago the number two person at the State Department uh, the counselor to the Secretary of State met with the Vice President of Nigeria because of issues going on in Lagos, uh, the, the business capital you know, of, of, of the country. It made it very, very clear that the United States government was dissatisfied with this and it needed, it needed to change. You never know how telling the story of a single victim uh, will uh, inspire people to act. And maybe it's just one more email or phone call that gets our politicians to do something themselves. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to add two points. Uh, you know, we're still uh, uh, reeling from the last debate uh, between the presidential candidates, and uh, if Reverend Moore and I were there, we would have asked about Nigeria. But here's the bottom line. No matter who's sitting in the Oval Office on January 20th, uh, there's no uh, diverting or averting our eyes anymore from what's happening there. Uh, God forbid this should just be viewed as a left or right issue or quote-unquote only for the faithful and, you know, it's not our business, we're not the world's cops, etc. Whoever sitting in the Oval Office will have to deal with Nigeria sooner or later. And I think that uh, we have a sleeping giant in uh, the American Christian community in the probably tens of thousands of churches across the country that should take a time also to collectively marshal its forces, uh, let the political establishment know. And um, if you want to take one other piece of advice from an Orthodox rabbi, uh, I think that uh, individual churches may want to and should adopt a church over in Nigeria. The goal here, I believe, in, in order to help improve or change that situation, is if you put a human face on what's going on in one venue, if you learn about one pastor, if you help uplift uh, members of your own denomination over there who are who are uh, facing uh, challenges that... Uh, go beyond our worst nightmares. I absolutely believe it will change the situation quickly. Because as Reverend Moore mentioned, we're talking about a, a government which technically is a democracy. There's a police force, there's a well-armed army. Uh, you know, when you get off, these, these are vital people. But this slow motion genocide will probably pick up steam if we collectively do nothing. And, and one last point is that I, I believe in terms of the next jihad, uh, we're all locked, locked up here still on the West Coast. I hope things are better elsewhere around the country. 
But young uh, uh, teenagers and youngsters, especially during this period, must be asking themselves, am I going to make a difference anywhere in, in, during the course of my life? Is there anything we could really do to help others locked away here? And I think the book and the issue might be one for faith communities, members of communities, parents to actually sit down with their kids and talk about it because you'd be surprised out of the mouth of babes of young people who have that uh, instinctive way of utilizing social media better than uh, dinosaurs like myself uh, could come up with some very interesting and creative and impactful ideas. I really love how you all have written this book first by, you know, choosing first and foremost that, you know, you want to tell people's personal stories. And then also by laying out so practically, these are the ways that we can get involved, that we can actually do something. Um, and I, I really love the fact that you all, as a reverend and a rabbi, that you came together to write this book in unity. What was that like for both of you bringing your faith backgrounds to the table in order to write on this really important issue? So I'm, I'm going to jump in here by saying that um, I got to know Reverend Moore because the Simon Wiesenthal Center, our institution, uh, actually made him our youngest honoree some years ago for his amazing work in saving Christians in Iraq in real time during the ethnic cleansing there. So what I saw in, in Reverend Johnny Moore was a man of faith, but also a man, a person of action. Uh, and that's what I've been my entire life. So uh, I think it's the, the combination of uh, we're believers with our own paths, obviously, to God. Uh, we're also doers uh, in the field of uh, human dignity and human rights. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to have been with the Simon Wiesenthal Center now my 44th year. Uh, and we bring a lot to the table. And plus, we can, you know, pick up a phone or send an email. Uh, a little bit later today, I'll be talking for the third time uh, you know, by Zoom to uh, Sudan involved. And Reverend Moore has been to Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've both been to Azerbaijan and uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I believe that um, putting theological issues, and they're not uh, inconsequential, but putting that aside, God wants us to do good. We find partners to do good, and we can figure out a way how to work together. We're going to do better. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, you know this book is about Nigeria, and that's the um, the most most important part of it uh, because of the people whose lives are like on the line today. But, but actually, maybe my favorite part of 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 the book. Uh, is is this subtext about how uh, a, you know a, a Christian pastor and, and a Jewish rabbi uh, can can work can work together you know to 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 make good and we say it's a, a multi faith partnership not an interfaith partnership you know it's multi faith you know he's uh, doing his work as an Orthodox Jew I'm doing mine as an as an evangelical Christian and we're living in this unusual time in history that despite centuries of uh, of anti-Semitism largely that came from the Christian community where the evangelical Christian community has, has become a, a great friend of, of, uh, of, of the state of Israel and of, of uh, the, the, the Jewish people. You know, and and uh, Rabbi Cooper and I happen to also be very patriotic Americans. You know, this is, uh, uh, it's because we had an American passport that we could go get on an airplane and go over and sit with these leaders and talk to these people. It's because we have 
religious freedom in this country, that we can be an example as to what countries should have uh, around the world. And uh, the fact that we come from different generations and different experiences, you know, in the back of the book, there's this amazing Q&A where I ask Rabbi Cooper, uh, you know, what it's been like to, uh, to, to stand in the gap for all of these uh, persecuted people all around the world for 50 years. And it's an incredible, incredible story that I, I, I just hope lots and lots of Christians read uh, and, and are inspired, inspired by, uh, and, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, deepened my faith and, uh, and allowed me to reach a lot more people by, by locking arms, uh, with, uh, with, with, with Rabbi Cooper and I've learned, learned so much along the way. And we tried to pass a little bit of that along as we tell the story of what's happening in this great uh, country in Africa. Yeah. Well, we could keep going for hours talking about both of, of your work on this issue uh, and what you have seen and written about, but we will just allow our listeners to get the book. It's The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa, and it's available on Amazon wherever books are sold. So Reverend Moore and Rabbi Cooper, thank you both so much for your time today, and thank you for your work on such an important issue. God bless. Thanks for having us. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who do you have first? Davis Bren left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, writing, I appreciate the news facts that are unbiased and comprehensive without the slant of same copycat media we see on Facebook and Twitter. This is refreshing and not depressing, making me a country citizen ready and knowledgeable for the day. And Merle Zoller writes, Dear Daily Signal, I have a 26-year-old grandson in Seattle who continues to believe that this new socialism is different and good. He believes America's past is bad, but doesn't look for the good. Very sad and typical now. I am getting new information every day from the Daily Signal. I love the truth. Please continue to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. Your letter can be featured on next week's show, so send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org.
Virginia, I can't think of a better way to start this Monday than a good news story. Over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Well, one of my favorite things about this season with Thanksgiving and Christmas right around the corner is that people are taking the time to slow down and ask how they can be helping others, how they themselves can be giving back. And today, one family in Oklahoma is serving as a great reminder for all of us as to why it's so important to give back when we have experienced blessing ourselves. Rachel Handy and her young children were homeless in 2018 until a nonprofit organization called Positive Tomorrows helped them get back on their feet. When I thought I was all alone and down, they were definitely the people that picked me back up. Positive Tomorrows moved the Handy family into a stable living situation, providing them the opportunity to save up enough money to eventually buy a home of their own. When COVID hit, Rachel lost her job as a waitress, but once again, Positive Tomorrows was there to help with the family's financial needs. We did get a grant and um, we used part of that to pay some bills off that we knew were gonna be coming up during me not working. And then we used the rest to fund and we got blankets for the homeless and we were able to feed almost 300 people. The Handy family has continued to make meals for those struggling with homelessness during the pandemic because Rachel says she wants her kids to grow up learning how to live out generosity. And the next big thing that we are working on is 500 bags of school supplies to give away. So if I can teach my kids how to be selfless and to give back, that's what I'm here to do. I think this is so critical to think about generosity as a gift that you're actually passing down to the next generation. So if there is a nonprofit or a cause that you and your family are excited about supporting this season, please let us know by either sending me an email or you can send an email to letters at dailysignal.com. We so want to highlight the amazing charitable work that I know so many of you do on a regular basis. Well, we certainly do, Virginia. Thanks so much for sharing that. And what a great idea. We hope that our listeners will take the time to write to us. We're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows are available at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.